Good morning, and good to see you. And if we haven't met, my name is Brian Habig. I'm one of the pastors here, and um, I want to welcome you to Downtown Presbyterian. Thank you for being with us in our time of worship. And if, uh, if there's any questions we can answer while you're here, please let someone know. We'll try to figure out an answer. I don't want to go back over announcements, but just while I've got you, I do want to reemphasize what Jake uh, announced this morning, and that is that this will be the last Sunday to submit nominations for new elders or new deacons. Those have to be people who are members, and they have to be nominated by people who are church members. Uh, electronic forms were sent to our membership. If you didn't receive that and you're a DPC member, would you let us know? We might could receive those till midweek, but then that will be the, the deadline. But do give that some thought and prayer. This is important, the men who lead us as elders and deacons. So thank you for your participation in that. We're, uh, we're still looking at the Ten Commandments. We're starting to wrap up. We're on the Eighth Commandment this morning. And again, short passage. So you can follow this in the bulletin. I have just the commandment there from Exodus 20. And then I want to read one passage from Ephesians chapter 4 in the New Testament. You may have stories from your family past, kind of these family stories of lore. And uh, I'll tell you one from mine. I had a great aunt who went by the nickname Honey. And uh, she was my dad's aunt. And very much a character, just to give you an idea of how much of a character she once felt like uh, her husband wasn't being attentive to her in some certain ways. And so she dyed her dog. I think it was a poodle. She dyed her dog to match her dress and went walking by him when he was eating somewhere. So that would give you an idea of who we're dealing with here. But my, my mom was over at her house one time and she, uh, honey, brought out this, this nice little tea set. And my mom said, well, honey, that's beautiful. Where did you get that? And she said, well, I was staying in such and such a city at such and such a hotel, and it came with the room service, and I just loved it, so I stole it. So there's that. Uh, On a more serious note, I'm going to look at my phone here. It's the quickest way to read this. The end of 2008, Bernie Madoff was arrested in New York City. He led what has to be one of the, the biggest Ponzi schemes in history. These, these were the criminal charges against him. Securities fraud, investment advisor fraud, mail fraud, wire fraud, money laundering, false statements, perjury, making false filings with the SEC. And this last one shows you how personal all this is. Theft from an employee benefit plan. Devastated so many people. So many people's retirement, so many people's savings, devastating. When, uh, when I was in seminary, more than once, and, and Jake and I went to the same seminary in St. Louis, more than once I heard the president share about the fact that every year, multiple Bibles in the Covenant Seminary Chapel leave and never come back. And you think about, okay... When, when the graduate school for preachers, like when the future preachers are stealing Bibles from the preacher school, it's kind of time to tap the brakes. Shoplifting. I heard this statistic uh, from, the, the, from the most recent data I could find, one in 11 people shoplift. In the last five years, 10 million shoplifters were caught not existed 
were caught. Ten million in the last five years. Now, all that to say, that should demonstrate theft is wide and it's narrow. Theft is macro and it's micro. And, And on that same place where I found the data about the Shoplifting. One of the one of the data points was there is no profile of a shoplifter. It is every kind of person, every income level. Celebrities will shoplift. The very poor will shoplift. Everyone in between. And here's what I want to look at: is what what does this say about our hearts? I mean, the kind of easy answer would be like we're messed up. Okay, granted, biblically that would check out. But what we're messed up? How? What is uh, what is theft show about us. And before I read these, these passages briefly, I just want you to keep these two questions in mind. We talk about these two questions a lot here. And, and I would even say these two questions, whether you ever darken the doors of this church or not, again, I, I would love for you to have these two questions in your toolbox anytime you interact with Scripture because it will help you get out of Scripture what we need to get out of it because it will help you from reading it just like a big list of do's and don'ts. And these are the two questions. When I come to any passage, number one, what does this passage show us about us who need redeeming, who need saving and cleansing? And the second question is, what does this passage show us about God who does the redeeming, who does the cleansing and the saving? And I really want those questions in your front pocket as we come to this commandment. So let's look at this. This is the eighth of the Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 20, and then one verse from Ephesians chapter 4. Exodus 20, verse 15. You shall not steal. And from Ephesians 4, the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, Let the thief no longer steal. Rather, let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. This is God's Word. Let's pray together. Our Father, we want to pray with the psalmist that you would open our eyes, that we might behold wonderful things from your law. And a commandment saying don't take other people's things doesn't seem wonderful. But, Father, open our eyes to see that wonderful things are here. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. In the early 2000s, there was a book that came out that uh, got some attention. It was by a journalist named Barbara Ehrenreich. The name of the book is Nickel and Dimed. And here's what happened. As a journalist, she wanted to get a better insight into what, what, is, what is it like to be an American, to be an adult, trying to make ends meet with a, a minimum wage job. And so her superior said, well, if you're going to really write about it intelligently, why don't you do it? Why don't you try it on for size? So she stepped, she was still employed, but she stepped out of her normal you know, life as a journalist. And for months, she worked different jobs that paid minimum wage just to see how it, you know, try it on from the inside. Uh, very high work ethic on her part, very, very well educated, very bright person. So as far as, you know, what she brings to the table, she brings good resources, good mind, high work ethic. And she said it just was almost impossible to do it. Very interesting book. But I want to read you one of the observations she made when she was 
working in a, uh, not a fast food restaurant, but a sit-down restaurant, but not a, not a high-end one. So think like a, you know, a, a Shoney's or something like that. And she, this is not really a big point or emphasis. She just says this in passing. But listen to this. She's talking about who, who tipped and who did not. You know, gratuities. The worst, for some reason, are the visible Christians. And like capital V, capital C. The visible Christians. Like the ten-person table, all jolly and sanctified after Sunday night service, who run me mercilessly and then leave me one dollar on a $92 bill. Or the guy with the crucifixion t-shirt, parentheses, someone to look up to. You got the guy coming in on Sunday, he's got got Jesus on the cross on the shirt, someone to look up to, who complains that his baked potato is too hard and his iced tea too icy, I cheerfully fix both, and he leaves no tip at all. As a general rule, people wearing crosses or WWJD buttons look at us disapprovingly no matter what we do as if they were confusing waitressing with Mary Magdalene's original profession. And what I want to add, by the way, if you want a little window into how we come across, how church people come across, that, that was a little window into how we come across. Um, but pay, pay note. But what signals do we send to the people around us with our hands? And I'm using that, that term in, in an Old Testament way. The Old Testament will use the language of when you're generous to other people, when you're generous to your neighbor, when you're generous to the poor, when you're generous toward God, it'll use the language of having an open hand. You've got an open hand. But the opposite is when you are stingy toward your neighbor. You're stingy toward some of the people that Jake prayed for, the, the, the quartet of the vulnerable, the poor, the fatherless, the widow, the alien. Or you're stingy toward God or give him nothing. The Old Testament, we use the language of you've got a closed fist, a tight fist, a closed hand. And what this commandment is hitting head on is what signals are we sending with our hands? Now, the big category is theft. But, you know, again and again as we've looked at these commandments, each one of them is like a container that gets at what are the heart dispositions? What are the heart problems up underneath the behaviors? And when it comes to just pretty much everything related to my possessions, what I want to hang on to, what I'm willing to let go of, what I'm willing to do to know that I have enough buffer where I don't have to worry about money. All that we could say is in this container where God says to his people at the base of the mountain, you shall not steal. So let's look at this. And here's how I want to drill down into this. First off, the variety of theft. And I really feel like I can only scratch the surface. And I, you know, maybe every command we could say, wow, there's you can break this command in more ways than any others. I, I, but I'm kind of blown away by how many ways there are to violate this commandment and how familiar they are. The, so let's look at the variety of theft, the motive for theft, and then the reversal of theft. The variety of theft, the motive for theft, the reversal of theft. Um, I want to say on the front end, there's some things I don't really want to address this morning about theft. I'm not saying they're not important. 
and that they're not real. And they may touch people in the room, but I'm not really going to be speaking so much about theft out of desperation, just simply because that's not most of the people in the room. I mean, true grinding poverty and desperation. I'm not really going to speak about theft that stems from addictions. You know, uh, drug addiction and theft often go hand in hand, unless somebody just has tons and tons of, of means and wealth. And I'm not really speaking about pathologies like kleptomania, which again, that can, that can exist for people who have lots and lots of money. They just steal because they're, they're, they're not well. But what I'm really talking about are things that, that like we might do or other institutions that we know might do. So let's look at it this way as far as variety. And again, this is a sampling. This is not exhaustive. These are just representative. Let's go big and then let's go small. So let's go macro and then micro. Macro, you could even think about like a government. A government can oppress its people. Uh, in the last few years, there's been a government that actually took its people's uh, savings and bank deposits to rescue itself. You can have a government that um, pays for things that mostly service the haves by taking money from the have-nots. And I've even seen business magazines say that, you know, one example of that in our own context are lotteries. It is absolutely undeniable that lotteries are regressive taxes. The people that typically buy the tickets in lotteries are not, are not the wealthy. It's the poor to finance things that mostly serve the haves. A government can steal. Uh, a business can steal. One, one big example would be what the, the old-fashioned word is usury. Usury which is just basically heartless levels of, of interest. Uh, predatory lending is not something new, but it's not something that's gone away either. Predatory lending. But, uh, but let's think about micro, because that's most of the people in the room, you know, just kind of individual behaviors. Shoplifting, we already talked about that. If one in 11 people shoplift, then probably people in this room have shoplifted or do shoplift. And it's just, you know, I would say this especially if you're visiting. A perennial problem for Christians when they come together is they talk about things like this like it's outside the room. And so I do want to try to be somewhat sane and and cognizant of the fact that there are probably shoplifters in the room. I'm not looking down on you. I'm just saying it probably exists here. Fraud misrepresenting, misreporting something for, uh, for personal gain. And that can take all kinds of forms. Uh, stealing things from your employer. Stealing, uh, it could be, that could be stealing business supplies. It could be stealing toner. It could be stealing ink cartridges. That one's really tempting, by the way. Stealing ink cartridges. I'm not condoning it. I'm just saying they're just so small and expensive. Don't get nervous about that when I use that example. Reimbursement is a huge one. If you are in a situation where there's someone who reimburses you for meals, travel, purchasing, there are all kinds of ways to work that. I mean, especially since most people don't use receipts that are carbon copied anymore. You can, you can by hand fill out two different sets of receipts. There's all kinds of ways to manipulate that and to steal from your employer. 
uh, cheating on taxes. There's, uh, it can be very hard to distinguish between what is uh, really smart bookkeeping and then what is creative bookkeeping. And creative bookkeeping is pretty much a fast slope toward cheating on taxes. And the Bible takes a very low view of that. Romans, um, one, of the, one of the biggest celebrations of the gospel in the New Testament, when it starts applying people who really believe the good news, one of the first applications is pay your taxes. I'll circle back to that. Frivolous lawsuits. Um, just really taking it to somebody, not just to pay you back for damages or injury, but to just to really turn the screw and make them feel it. Or maybe not necessarily having been that injured, just you can get away with the lawsuit and you can benefit from it, you can profit from it, so you do it. Now, I would call those, as far as just individuals, those would be theft that are sins of commission. And this is an old designation, sins of commission, sins of omission. Commission is where you sort of know that what you're doing is, is, a, is a breach of what God wants. Omission can be leaving something undone. What could be theft by omission? This is a big one. Idleness. Idleness. Not working when we're supposed to be working. And let's face it, I, I mean, for any of us, we feel like, hey, if, if, if I can be at work, and if you're in a job, you know, where you sit in an office or sit in a cubicle or whatever, if I can be there and like emailing my friends or texting my friends or checking social media and get paid for sitting there and doing that, then I'm smart. But that's actually what Scripture would call idleness, which is a form of theft. It's a way of stealing from an employer. The, the numbers, I don't know how you really can get an accurate estimation of the effect on the economy from idleness, but the, the, the estimations are just through the roof. They're gigantic about how we waste time when we're supposed to be working. And I say we. Piracy, uh, stealing entertainment, stealing music, stealing movies, stealing software. Interesting figures about how many people who use Photoshop actually paid for Photoshop. It's a big one. Withholding justice. Now, what that might look like if you are in a position where people work for you, that could be an individual who works for you or that could be people on your payroll, is withholding benefits that that person ought to have. And from a, and from a biblical vantage point, what that might even look like is withholding something that maybe is not legally required, but love of neighbor and doing of justice would require it. And knowing that and withholding it to help the bottom line. Um, bad debt. And there's, there's, the debt's not, no, no one just walks around loving their good debt, but there is, there is a debt that works toward things that are for the good of a person or the good of a family. Uh, debt in order to purchase uh, to have a roof over your head, debt to have an automobile that allows you to go places and work and, and meet obligations. But there's bad debt. 
You know, there's debt where I got in over my head just because I wanted this and I didn't have the money to pay for it. And I knew I could put it on my credit card and I did. And it ran away from me. And now, like, I can hardly keep up with the interest payments. And that money could be going somewhere else that's constructive. That's, that's bad debt. And again, I hear different figures about how much the average household in America has with credit card debt. But just if, if we just... Re- law of averages ran the numbers for this room, it would be in the, maybe in the hundreds of thousands of credit card debt in the room. And non-generosity. You know, over and over and over... And and I feel like I was very slow to see this. Over and over and over. In the Old Testament and in the New, there is this commendation of and warning of not being generous to the poor and the needy and the orphan and the alien. Over and over and over. Back to the hands. To open your hands to those who do not have. To open your hands to them. The Bible will even speak, and and, by the way, opening your hands to the Lord. And it'll even, you know, like what you might hear when I say open your hands to the Lord is give more money to the church. In Proverbs, it talks about he who gives to the poor lends to the Lord. Isn't that interesting? Who else would talk in terms of making a loan to God? He who gives to the poor lends to the Lord and will be repaid. But to not do that and to not be generous toward God is a form of theft. It's to say, my money does not exist for a community and my money does not exist to glorify God. My money exists to serve me and will be handled as such. Is a form of theft, much less taking somebody else's stuff. And before we go any further, just thinking about the variety of theft, I want you to hear how, just from what we've said so far... Because, like, right now, could the nation be more polarized? Could the nation be more politically divided? Could, could the ideologies be clearer? But here's the thing. Just this command stretches everybody. Because on the one hand, you have this incredible high priority of private property. That there is such a thing as private property. If you own something, it's not my right to come take your thing. You can actually, in God's economy, own something. And what you have exists not just for you, but for the community. Both of those are seen in the commandment. So everybody is stretched. Well, what's the motive for theft? And I'm not under the illusion that there's just one. And again, we're not talking about there could be pathologies, there could be addictions... There could just be grinding poverty and desperation. But I'm talking about why do people with means who have stuff, why do we steal? Why do we withhold? Why do we fudge on things or misrepresent things when we don't have to? Uh, not long ago, I, I read, read you a quote by a man who works with orphans and places orphans. And, um, and if, if, if some of you are here and remember this, he talked about the, the, this common phenomenon that he sees. I can't remember which nation it was, but orphans from, from a really poor, a poor nation, that when they're placed in loving homes, you know, with families who've been vetted and who have the sufficient means to take care of them and they're like loving people and all that, that when those children are placed in those homes, 
this man would often get reports that for months these children would hoard food. You know, like the, the uh, adoptive dad, the adoptive mom would be maybe cleaning up a room or checking somewhere, and they would find, a, like, food stashed in a box or under the bed. Now, what, what, what's happening there? That what you've got is that this child is legally adopted. This child legally now does belong to another family. And this child factually now is safe. But none of that has registered yet. Like, those things are true. But on the, in the heart, you know, like in the deep insides, I am not okay. This whole thing could fall apart. I've got to have a buffer. And I want you to take that as a picture of why people like us steal. Like, when we come together in this room and we, we pray what we pray and we sing what we sing and we celebrate what we celebrate, you know, we are celebrating that we belong to God. That he is our father. The reason we can say heavenly father is not because we naturally showed up children of God. But because we believe that in his mercy, he adopted people like us. Who deserved not to be in his family. Who deserved not to call him father. And to be left to our own devices, which would have been our doom. But that he rescued us and cleansed us and saved us and brought us to himself. That we're his sons and daughters, and he's our father. That's what we celebrate and sing. But that does not mean that it makes it into our insides. Um, I mean, think about this. Think about, like, let's go back to the Old Testament. When the people went out in the wilderness, when they left Egypt and went into the wilderness, there's no stores, there's no food, there's no farms. How did they eat? God provided them manna. They may have killed wildlife or found plants they could eat, but the, the staple of their diet was this thing called manna, which is Hebrew for, what is it? And supernaturally, God would cause this to fall like dew on the ground. It would dry out. And it was some kind of flaky sort of food. You gathered it and, and made food with it. And one of the provisions that God said was, it's going to fall every day, but twice as much is going to fall on the sixth day. So that you don't have to work on the seventh day. So gather more on that sixth day so that you can eat the seventh day. But don't gather more any other days. If you try to gather more other days, it will go bad. And some of the Israelites tested them, and it did. Why would they do that if they watched it fall every day? Because this is so deep in our hearts. Like, yeah, it's fallen for the last hundred days. But how do we know that he'll come through again? And so what do we want? What's the strategy? We want a buffer. However we define that, we want a buffer. And the question that I want us to ask ourselves this morning is, okay, for you right now, forget the Israelites. Let's think about ourselves. How much buffer do you want before you really become a more generous person? How much buffer do you want before you really become 
a more open-handed person. I don't mean so that you can get accolades for being an open-handed person. I mean so that you can be an open-handed person. How much buffer do you want? Now, I've said this before. I think that most of us would say, hey, look, I'm not aspiring to be mega wealthy. I just need about $30,000 more dollars. Is that the buffer? How much, going where angels fear to tread, okay? Which is where preachers should be. How much retirement do you want? I probably shouldn't say this out loud, but I think if I were really honest, I would say, I'll tell you how much retirement I want. I want enough retirement that I'll always be a man who lives by faith, except on that. Like, I want to be a man who lives by faith, but I also want to know that if everything went to hell in a handbasket, I'm okay which is not faith. Now, some of you just heard me say, be communists and have no retirement. That's not what I'm saying. The Bible talks about savings. I just said the Bible commends having private property. The Bible commends... The, the Proverbs talks about a wise man, a righteous man, leaves an inheritance for his children's children. Okay? But what I'm saying is, how much do we want before we really open our hands and aren't clingy. Sacrificial giving, and I'm not thinking primarily of gifts to a local church. Sacrificial giving is actually very rare. I've had C.S. Lewis on the brain um, this fall because I've been doing some teaching about him, and I was reminded of something that I read about him a while back, but I'd forgotten it, is that C.S. Lewis was just always on pins and needles about money. Everybody that knew him said he was just always nervous about money, which kind of made sense after his death when it came out that he gave away two-thirds of his income. There are all these widows and poor people that he knew, and he gave out of his book royalties and his own salary, to them, and no one knew about it. I'm not saying that's the template for everybody, but that's sacrificial giving. That's an unusual level of giving. If you have someone that you want to leave money to, even if you're not a parent, maybe you want to leave it to a nephew or a niece, how much inheritance do you want to leave to that person? Do you want to set a loved one up to be rich? Do you know what Jesus said about the rich? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And typically, we who have means hear that and go, yeah, but I think I can beat the rap. I think I and my family can be well off and enter the kingdom of heaven. Maybe, but the stats are not in our favor. Where is the church diminishing? The church is diminishing in the United States and it's circling the drain in Europe where the most affluence is. Where is the church exploding? Where there's poverty. You know, we are capable of setting up a child or a grandchild to be like never, I mean, it'd be great to set somebody up to um, have a jump start on a house or a jump start on their first automobile or a jump start on, on college. That can be great and constructive, but if we're trying to set them up to never have to worry about money, 
Jesus spoke in terms of you can stand before the living God one day and not be what he calls rich toward God. But you have everything else. And all that is burned away and you're not rich toward God. That, that thing in us, like, I want enough buffer. I want buffer for me. I want buffer for the people I care about. I want to leave a buffer for the loved ones in my life. It gets really tough to discern what is wisdom about savings. What is wisdom about stewardship? What is wisdom about a wise inheritance for people I care about? And what is a buffer so that I know that if God doesn't come through, we're okay? That is the disposition of an orphan. So what's the reversal of theft? Um, I want to read you something by a theologian named B.B. Warfield. If we had a big PowerPoint screen up here, at this point in the sermon, I would show you a photo of B.B. Warfield just so you could see his beard. And you would appreciate anything he has to say just from, from, the, from his epic beard, I think. He was a great theologian. He taught it. Princeton Seminary, and he was preaching about, um, or he was writing about Jesus being a giver. He wasn't talking about theft. He's really just talking about Jesus as a giver and how that should impact people who know him and love him in their giving. And I just want to read you what he says. He says, now, dear Christian, some of you pray night and day to be branches of the true vine. You pray to be made over in the image of Christ. If so, you must be like him in giving. And then he quotes from the New Testament. Though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor. And then Warfield starts to like, he, he brings up objections that we might have to being more generous people. Objection number one, my money is my own. Answer, Christ might have said, my blood is my own. My life is my own. Then where should we have been? Next objection. If I give to the poor, the poor may abuse it. Answer, Christ might have said the same. Yea, with far greater truth, Christ knew that thousands would trample his blood under their feet, that most would despise it, that many would make it an excuse for sinning more. Yet he gave his own blood. Remember when uh, Barbara Ehrenreich was, she was talking about the people that come in all jacked up from church and, you know, like the guy with the T-shirt on that says somebody to look up to about Jesus on the cross. You know, there's, Christians have kitschy things, kind of corny things, T-shirts, stuff that we have. You know, there's one that I remember seeing a while back, and it said something to this effect. Uh, someone asked Jesus, how much do you love the world? And he, and he opened his arms and he died. And I kind of thought that was corny until I found it in a church father from like the 200s. A guy named Athanasius. He said that Jesus loved us so much that the only way you can die with your arms open is crucifixion. So he reached out a hand to the Jews and a hand to the Gentiles. That's the whole world. That he might draw the whole world to himself. He gave. Though he was rich, yet he became poor. Jesus did not tithe himself. Jesus gave his whole self. God gave his whole son. The opposite of theft is giving. God so loved this world 
that he gave his son. And, and irony of ironies, where does he hang? He hangs between two thieves as he gives. Man, when that grabs people's hearts, what happens? What it frees up your heart to do is that, you know, we can have wise savings. We can save for a rainy day. We can invest. We can think about money when, I'm, when I can't work anymore. Money to take care of my family. Something to leave behind for the people I care about. But you know what we can do? We can become open-handed. Like we can hear the words of the Apostle Paul that... Uh, He who did not spare his own son, his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things and we can let go of things? If God sent me his own son, maybe I can sock away a little bit less to be open-handed to this person and let God take care of that. And the other thing is this. When this grabs people's hearts, what you see in the history of the church is not just generosity, but this thing called restitution. I'm going to end with this. In the 1950s, uh, journalists in Edinburgh, Scotland, and this is one of those things that unless I'd read this, I never would have known this happened or existed. It was not a big news item. But journalists in Edinburgh reported that after a Billy Graham crusade, in 1954, in Glasgow, after he left, there was this surge of people coming into stores in Glasgow paying for things they stole. No one orchestrated it. No one supervised it. But this work of the Holy Spirit that For some reason, when a bunch of people heard the gospel and it touched their hearts and the Spirit was at work, one of the first fruits of that was people started paying back where they had gained unlawfully. Is that you? As I've been talking this morning, is there someone you're thinking of that I know that I gained at that person's expense and I need to pay it back? You know what I want to say to you? Pay it back. If you can do it in a lump, do it in a lump. If you have to do it over time, do it over time. But you know what? That could be your act of liberation, knowing that I have all I need. And God will not forsake me. And I don't have to live like an orphan. He is my Father. Because it's true. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, turn us towards you. Renew our hearts and open our eyes to see your generosity toward us. Make us open-handed people. Bring glory to yourself. Keep filling our hands. And then free us to let go of what you give, that we might be generous. Give us hearts of repentance so that we are not thieves, but givers. We thank you for the work of your Son, and it's in his name we pray. Amen.